Well, good morning. We're going to jump right in. This morning, I want to talk to us about perspective. See, our perspective has a ton to do with our current state of mind, right? I think as Christians and in our culture, it's really easy to get lost in the wrong perspective. I wish we were all grounded enough to continually have a kingdom perspective, but we're flawed human beings. So let's go back to the story of the Titanic, okay? Imagine you're on the Titanic and you now know that the ship is sinking. I'm sure your perspective would be that of fear or panic or desperation. You're in a boat and you're watching it go down and there is no help in sight. There's just icebergs and cold water and a black sky. That's probably the perspective of the people on the ship. But there were some, I'll call them upper class guests on that boat that had 100% different perspective. The Titanic sinking was an absolute miracle to the lobsters in the ship's kitchen. They knew that they were going to be set free momentarily. Or this story, there's two men and they're on opposite sides of a river and one yells out, how do I get to the other side? And the other one yells back, you're on the other side. It's perspective. You know, I read this story recently and it just kind of encapsulated uh, perspective. And so let me share it with you. It's a local restaurant. It's kind of fancy. It's a busy night. And at table five, there's a woman. And she stood up and she shrieked kind of incomprehensible yet vulgar syllables at the man across from her. The entire restaurant pauses. They want to watch and see the drama unfold. The woman proceeds to launch the contents of her wine glass all over the man across from her, in his face, on his suit. The woman sweeps herself up and she storms out of the restaurant. She starts to cry. The room kind of holds its place in that moment, right? Silent, awkward waiting, watching, and then like a record slowly starting or resuming its speed and it revs back up to the natural rhythm of clanks and clamors and murmurs and things that are going on. Well, at table seven, Lynn watched the woman and all the drama with extra interest. Lynn felt disgusted. She was proud. She was independent. She was assertive. She was an activist. Lynn saw herself as all of these things. Lynn wouldn't throw wine at the man. She would have thrown the bottle. Her self-assurance in that moment would appear to some as strength and to others as arrogance. What Lynn didn't think about in that moment were the neighborhood kids who threw rocks at her as a child or the cousin who was raped and was too afraid to report it to the police. Or the way her mom and dad always seemed to have time for everything else besides her. At table 11, 
The woman's yelp made John drop his neatly pasted fork right onto his lap. John's reaction to this unexpected jolt was the same reaction he had to most stressful events in life, indignation. When the woman threw the wine, John didn't think of the wife who had divorced him. He didn't think of the high school girlfriend who left him in an eerily similar kind of fashion. Even if he wanted to, he wouldn't have been able to think about the way he poured himself into his work, codes, systems, logic, because it was the only thing in his life he could control and predict. Marge and Bob, an elderly couple, they were at table three, and when the woman screamed, Marge's body swiveled the full 180 degrees in her chair, kind of like a cat caught off guard. Marge was attracted to any drama these days, and she knew it. She also knew that little seemed to happen in her life anymore. What she didn't know, but rest assured, she was going to find out was what actually happened. Oh my, what happened? I wonder what happened. She said again, and she turned to her husband, Bob. Bob never even looked up at the commotion. Instead, he just kept shoveling in risotto into his mouth. Marge would ask again and again and again and again, at least three, four, five more times. My goodness, what happened? It was like the chorus to a song that Bob had heard for 56 years. And he finally responded and said, eat your food, Margie. At table 16, there was Charles Taylor, alone at a corner table, a little overweight, messy, bearded, kind of think there might have been something, some food stuck in his beard. He looked up from his book and said, for goodness sake, lady, that's good wine you're throwing out. And then he went back to his book. The maitre d' observed the events from the front of the restaurant. When the woman stood up and started, began walking towards him, his emotions swelled and his chest kind of tightened. His heart sped up. He began to find himself upset. In his mind, he was upset for the woman, that she was so hurt. But he was also upset about being ignored. The years and years of being ignored or passed over. He was upset that the wine wasn't thrown on him instead. And lastly, the waiter rushed to the man's side, right? He came to clean up the mess or help the gentleman. While he wiped the wine off the man's collar and suit, the waiter kind of bristled with a little bit of excitement. In the waiter's family, resentment and blame were how loved ones communicated. So wine thrown on someone was called Tuesday. This, to him, was what love felt like. The bottom line in these stories, every person, every subject in these stories brought their past, their emotions, their highs, their lows, their insecurities, their dramas, their pain to form their own perspective. You know, we've been in this lament series now for the past couple weeks or couple months, and I'm thankful that Frank 
decided to do this series. Honestly, it's difficult. It's hard. Most places don't talk about this. Many churches skip right over the hard stuff and go straight to the happy 10 ways to be a better person. But here we are trying to be real and vulnerable and open and deep. And some of the key things that we've learned so far in Lament is this. I want to go through them. Lament is the honest cry of the child of God living in the tension of pain and the promises of God. Lament exists because loss exists. Sharing our complaint with God isn't a lack of faith. It's deep abiding faith because we are laying our burdens on the only one who has the power to do anything about them. God's desire is to meet with the brokenhearted and save the crushed in spirit. Lament is a type of confession in the presence of God with us in our pain. Our hope isn't in changed circumstances, but in the unchanging God who will keep being God. And last week, living by faith is clinging to the yet even when it hurts. And this morning, living a life of worship glorifies God and changes our perspective. So today, I'd like you to grab your Bibles, open them up. We're going to jump into Psalm 117. It's a really expansive, long, big chapter of two verses. So let me read that for you. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Why would we close the Lament series with this simple, short psalm of praise? Honestly, when Frank gave me two passages to consider, uh, I kind of had to sit there and think through it for a while to understand. Life is hard. Life is taxing. Many of you today are sitting here in great pain in one thing or another. Lost relationships. Sickness. Broken dreams, unmet desires, unmet needs. We live in a fallen world. We're surrounded by pain and suffering. And if you're in a season of happiness, well, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer, but pain and heartache will be a part of your story once again. It's life. I'm sure many of you could sit here And just have tears in your eyes right now at the situations that you find yourself in. You know, Scripture is clear on this life having pain and suffering. So may I suggest today that Psalm 117 brings some truth and some principles that may help us in our season of lament. Number one, the psalm is written... For all people, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. It was not just written for the Jews. It was for all Gentiles, too. That means it's for you and for me. It's not just a select group of people. It's a command for every race, every ethnicity, every color, every political view. The word all defines the group that it's discussing. 
Many people can kind of see that or see God as a vain thing in that. God must have some defect that he sits up there and just wants to be praised. What if it's not his defect? What if it's our need? Our need is to see God's infinite glory. God knows he is the standard, and from praise, people find joy. Why wouldn't God want praise that spilled over into joy as well? John Piper says it best. The reason God seeks our praise is not because he won't be complete until he gets it. He's seeking our praise because we won't be happy until we give it. Notice this verse, these verses don't give us the circumstances around which we should praise. It doesn't say when you're on the mountaintop and everything is going your way, then give God praise. It doesn't say when you define your happiness and then you meet that expectation, well, then you praise him. Stop taking your perspective and your circumstances and making them the grounds for if and when you praise him. Yes, that means praise him in the midst of heartache and pain. Praise him when life gives you lemons. Praise him in grief. Praise him through trials. It reminds me of James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, for the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Why do we get so caught up in surprise when life is hard? It's like something bad happens, and we say, wait, what? Something painful and hard? I'm shocked. Why is that a shock to us? Why do we live in that false narrative that life should always be easy, fun, happy, and pain-free? Yes, there can be seasons of that. Don't get me wrong. But rest assured, we all know life is not easy. Look, our tragedies, our pains, our hurts, our problems create an environment that we can be emptied. To be filled with Jesus, you must first be emptied of you. Tony Evans said it best at a conference we were at. The Lord's Prayer says, thy will be done, not my will be done. How does God use these scenarios in our lives? Honestly, it brings us to the place of having nowhere to turn but God. Instead of you trying to control your way out of the pain, being shocked maybe that you're even in some pain, be at the place of letting it go and letting God use it in your life and in your heart. God makes followers in the desert. The desert is where he made Paul and Joseph and Moses, just to name a few. At that same conference, someone prayed this over our church staff, actually the whole conference, but they prayed this prayer. 
I pray you keep running out of everything you have so that you can run to everything you need in Christ. The second part of this chapter is this. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. That's worship. There's lots of definitions of worship. Here's just a few. Warren Wearsby. Warren Wearsby says, Worship is the believer's response to all they are, mind, emotions, will, body, to what God is and says and does. John Stott says, Christians believe that true worship is the highest and noblest activity of which man, by the grace of God, is capable. Louis Giglio, actually this is my favorite definition of worship, Louis Giglio says this, worship is our response both personal and corporate to God for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. God has and will be faithful to you. Part of worship is declaring what God has done in your past. If you're a believer, I know that each person here could tell a story of how the Lord met you in your pain and suffering and was faithful. We're so forgetful, though. I'm so forgetful if you're not. Yes, God has met me in my times of need. Yes, he's brought us through seasons of darkness. He's provided food when we didn't think we would have it. He's provided that extra money for that little emergency that we didn't know that was even going to come up. He's present in the midst of deep pain and grief. You know, sometimes as a pastor, you get to see God in some of people's worst life situations or circumstances. Many times it's when a loved one dies and you're there with the family and they all love Jesus. The pain is not gone. The doubt is not gone. The sheer devastation and despair are so thick that you could touch it in the air. But the peace and the presence of God is real. I've been with a lot of believers as they've passed from this rough life, and honestly, some from a horrible, nasty, horrible suffering. The most memorable was that of being in the room with my mother as she took her last breath. And I knew and felt Jesus, my family knew and felt Jesus holding us in that moment. Not physically hugging me, but the presence was evident. It didn't change our feelings. It didn't change the reality of the circumstance. She was gone. But God was there. Think of the countless Bible stories about his faithfulness. Did he not show his faithfulness to Noah and Moses and Jonah and Paul and Peter? And the list goes on and on. We worship for what 
He's done. We also worship for who He is. You know, as believers, I don't think we look at these things very often, so let me remind you. Our God is infinite. He's self-existing without origin. God is immutable. He never changes. God is self-sufficient. He has no needs. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. God is omnipresent. He's always everywhere. Wrap your brains around that one. God is wise. He's full of perfect, unchanging wisdom. God is faithful. He's infinitely, unchangingly true. God is good. He's infinitely, unchangingly kind and full of goodwill. God is just. He's infinitely, unchangingly right and perfect in all that he does. He's sovereign. He's impartial. The list goes on and on. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. who our God is. You know, if I'm to be honest, in the past several weeks um, or months, I've been struggling with some depression. I've been in some kind of dark places. I've been unsure of life and all that's in my midst. If, if I'm real, I, I've joked with Lisa, I've said, I'm 44, it must be a midlife crisis. No, we're, we're fine, but... Um, There have been circumstances that are 100% out of Lisa and I's control. There have been dramas that have been forced upon us. There's been deep sorrow and pain from past wounds and hurt, and the reality that some of those circumstances may never change. And the question that I've had to wrestle with, is Jesus enough? Man, it's so easy to say, yes, Jesus is totally enough when you're in the good seasons. But when you're at the lowest of lows and you're deep, you're deep down in the trenches, it's not so easy, is it? Many of us try and we try and we try and we control what we're suffering in. Or many of us find outlets to ease the pain by literally just ignoring reality. Or many of us go to the next thing that looks like it will lead to happiness. Look, our circumstances lead us to a place of emptying ourselves so that we can be filled more with Christ. This life trains us for the longing of our future life in glory. Life is hard. That's why Lamentations is in the Bible. There's countless stories of pain and suffering. Don't live in that false reality and pretend that life isn't hard. Instead, be real, vulnerable, open, but don't live in despair. I believe lament and worship go hand in hand. A famous commentator stated this, praise brings heaven to earth. Lament brings earth before heaven. 
Psalm 117 reminds us, commands us to worship. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it states, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Worship changes our perspective. Take your eyes and turn them to Jesus. Look up and worship God for who he is and what he's done. There's hope and his name is Jesus. Worship is honestly really simple. Yet in times of great struggle, it can be really, really difficult. You know, if you come into this place and you're in a season of pain, and the praise team starts to sing, can I commend you to just be obedient and open your mouth and start to sing those words? God will use it in your heart and change it to worship and change your perspective. So are you experiencing great joy? Worship. Are you in a season of desperation? Worship. Are you on top of the mountains? Worship. Are you in the depths of the deepest valley that you can't even imagine existed? Worship. I want to end this morning with a story that many of you know. Many believers know this story. It's the story of the Israelites. The Israelites have been slaves for 430 years. They're working day and night to build temples and idols and pyramids to gods and rulers and ideas that they don't even agree with. They're beaten. They really exist for the sole purpose of the pleasure of Pharaoh. They're suffering great and deep, deep pain. Can you imagine the perspectives that are going on? I mean, I would assume that many are depressed. Many had given up. There's probably some who wanted to die. There's always an optimist in the crowd, so there's probably some that had hope in the midst of all of this. It's really hard to say. But then one day, God uses Moses and starts a process to send ten plagues to Pharaoh and his people. Day after day, plagues occur. And it ends with the last plague where all The firstborn, livestock, and people were killed. God, of course, spared the Israelites because they were obedient and put blood on the doorpost. So now, put yourself in the Israelites' perspectives. Of course, they're all over the place. They're literally watching people suffer. They probably can hear the cries of people of their loved ones being gone in the distance. There's probably some that were happy. I mean, they got what they deserved. There's some that are scared or fearful. I think that's the camp that I would live in. I mean, 
all of the firstborn things around you died in one night, I think that would kind of freak us out, right? No one knew that this was going to lead to Pharaoh being broken enough to let the Israelites go. In fact, for all they knew, Pharaoh might be so mad that he kills them all right there. But, as the story goes, Pharaoh says, go. I can't. Get out. Leave. So now, as an Israelite, you literally have lived in this situation in captivity for years. Freedom sounds awesome, but it's also really unknown. (laughs) Where will we go? What will we eat? Who's going to take care of us as we travel? Their perspective, I can imagine, would be one of great relief, yet also filled with uncertainty and fear. Kind of spreads the gamut, right? So they leave, and they get to the Red Sea, and God says to camp out. So they start to camp out. I can imagine they start to set up their tents, Remember, they're now far enough away that they probably feel a little more comfort. There's a little less fear that Pharaoh's going to come into the situation. And here they are. They've got tents going, and they've got bonfires, and they're talking. And my version is they're probably roasting manna s'mores. You know, they're like hanging out, checking it out. And all of a sudden, they hear a rumble in the distance. And they turn, and they look, and they see Pharaoh and 600 chariots and all these men coming. And rest assured, they know they're mad, and they're coming for their life. So here's the Israelites. The Red Sea's in front of them. I don't know where to go. Behind them is now death approaching them. But God. God creates a wall of smoke and of fire that separates the Israelites from death. They're still kind of stuck in this weird place. I mean, the Red Sea's in front of them, and now there's this wall, and they don't know this wall. This wall could be there for five minutes or 30 years. They have absolutely no idea. But God uses Moses, he raises his staff, and the Red Sea parts. Okay. What are we going to do? I mean, death is here, and we don't know how long this wall is going to last, and now there's this opening in this sea, and let me give you a little details. The, The Red Sea at its narrowest was 19 miles wide. At its most depth, it was 3,500 feet. The average depth was 1,700 feet. So let me just be clear. This was another problem they were going to have to go through. So here they are, and what do they do? They grab what's most important to them. They, They pick up what they can. They start to move. They start to go into the sea. They literally are walking into and through their problems. And can you imagine 1,700 feet at the bottom of walls of water? There's like 
fish and things swimming around that they don't even know exists. There's all sorts of stuff going on. I think, honestly, if I was there and had to walk through, I would have died with other people from the stress and the anxiety of it. I don't know that all the Israelites made through. That's not in the Bible. But anyways, they're going through. And they get to the other side, and the last Israelite steps out of the walls of water. And they turn around, and they look, and the wall is now gone, and they're, the wall, the, the pharaoh and chariots and all of them are starting to come on the same path. It says in the Bible, specifically it says, they turned to Moses and they literally said, really, really Moses, you got to bring us out here. There wasn't enough graves to bury us in Egypt that now you're going to bring us here to kill us? So Pharaoh and the army are rushing through. They're literally standing on the other side and they're watching. But God, he comes in and as the whole army's in the middle, in the depths, the waters close on top of them. And the Bible says not one army person, Pharaoh, any of them were saved. Can you imagine the awe? Can you imagine that moment? Here you are. You literally have just watched miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, all going forward in obedience because you didn't really know where it was going to take you. You even had the wrong perspective the entire time. But as I was reading Exodus 14 and 15, Lisa, my wife, pointed out one small little thing that as I was reading it, I just passed right on over. It wasn't important to me. No, everything in the Bible is important. Miriam. One woman. One woman who God uses, of course he uses the person or someone in culture that's not esteemed in the way that they are today. One woman, as she left the campsite, she grabbed in obedience what was most important to her. What did she grab? In fact, it says all the women grabbed it. She grabbed her tambourine. They got to the other side, and Miriam starts to dance and sing, and the women lead a worship service that the entire nation of Israel comes to be a part of in worship to God. So can I remind us, with that story in mind, remind us today that as we're going through this rough life, as we walk in and through trials and heartache and pain, as we experience the depleting of ourselves so that more of Christ can be a part of us, as you walk through pain, as you live in lament, let me encourage you to not forget to pick up your tambourine and exclaim these words, praise the Lord all nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures 
forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we don't know um, where everyone's at in this room. There's probably some that are in the mountaintops, and there's some that probably don't even know if they want the day to continue. And Lord, um, I specifically pray for this act of obedience to worship. 